We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Rippy Writes with Brian Scott. The transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Thursday? I'm Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. A little off schedule, but we've got Michael Borky in the house today. Uh, Sports Talk Mississippi, do it all, man. We chopped it up a lot about Ole Miss, covered some state, Alabama, and bounced around the SEC as we uh, kind of hit the home stretch of games this year. So interesting conversation. And then some Pelicans corner at the end for the, I know, thousands of NBA fans we have out there. But a good conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. Before we get to that, though, I wanted to remind you, the podcast is brought to you by a new sponsor, Ray Stevens of Square Real Estate. Ray is a licensed real estate agent based in Oxford. He works for Square Real Estate. Whether you're looking to buy a five-bedroom dream home or a two-bedroom condo in Oxford, Ray can help you do that. Buy or sell. Whether you're looking to move from place to place, sell one condo, go to another, sell your house, go to another place, Ray can help to take the hassle out of that process. He provides individual service to each and every one of his clients. He takes pride in helping you find a home that you can cherish. Maybe you're coming up for the football games, tired of paying for the overpriced hotel rooms, asking friends for an extra room, whatever the case may be, you want to get a place of your own. I promise you, Ray can find you with a terrific place that fits in your price range, and boom, all of a sudden you got it squared away. You own the place. You can come up whenever you want to, football, baseball, whatever. Maybe you're an Oxford local looking to go from one house to another. He can take the hassle out of the home selling process and help you find a home that fits your needs to the next place you're going to. Whatever it is, he is an expert in real estate in across Oxford. He loves helping people, loves working with people, particularly Ole Miss people, and can help you find the best home possible for your needs. All you have to do is give him a call, tell him you heard about it on the podcast, and he will hook you up. The number is 601-624-4824. Just give him a call, tell him what you're looking for. The home buying and selling process, whether it's a second property or your normal home, can be overwhelming, can be overcomplicated. He will take the hassle out of that for you, provide you with options that are going to fit your needs, fit your price range, and boom, you're good to go. It's good to work with people you trust. I wouldn't send you to someone I don't. He's a sharp guy. He works very hard, and he is an absolute rock star in the industry. Check him out, Ray Stevens of Square Real Estate. If you're looking to buy or sell a property anywhere around Oxford, give him a call at 601-624-4824. Broker number is 662-832-7777. 
Podcast is also brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox matrix, interval, and advanced modeling mechanism that can help that help propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Skybox coming off just an unbelievable weekend in both college and the NFL. NASCAR destroyed it this weekend. If you're not just blindly betting on NASCAR, even though you don't understand the sport, uh, and just profiting off of Skybox NASCAR, I don't know what you're doing. Today, they hit plus 42 and a half units on one race. That is right. You heard that correctly. If you had taken their picks on one NASCAR race, whether you watched it or not, you would have profited 42 and a half units in a day. I don't know anyone else is doing that. They're also helping you make money in the NFL and in college. Stop paying your bookie out every week, adding to the Sunday scaries. Just go on skyboxsportspicks.com, pick a picks package that fits your price range. You try it for a day, a week, a month, whatever. You can go all sports, sports-centric, whatever the case may be. It'll fit your price range, and boom, you'll be better aligned to profit than you were 10 minutes than trying than before you tried Skybox. They'll send you a nice little email, color-coded spreadsheet, all the different units on it, and you will be equipped like a pro to profit because that's the only way to actually do it in the long run. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Once you buy a package, type in the promo code RIPPY, that's R-I-P-P-E-E, and that'll get you 20% off. Saving money and making money at the same time. What could be better? Skyboxsportspicks.com. All right, here is Michael Borky. Right, we now welcome good friend of the program, Super Talk Do-It-All Man, Michael Borky, Sports Talk Mississippi, 3 to 6 every Monday through Friday. Uh, been a few weeks since we talked to you. you. Subbed in for Weldon while he was on a European excursion for a couple weeks. We always try to check in around the midway point. I guess this counts. It's kind of the midway point. Ole Miss played eight games. They have a bye week in between. But uh, what's happening, man? This uh, this season's going by quick. I say this every year, to probably to some degree. But this one in particular, I did look up last week, and I was in Fort Worth. I was watching the game with MC, and I was like, Damn, they have four games left, and then this thing's over. And I know there's a bye week in between, but do, do you feel the same way that this season has gone by like unreasonably quickly? Yeah, and for some reason, the off season felt like it took forever to get here too. I yeah. don't understand. I understand that. I mean, you know, Ole Miss played for and won a national championship in baseball, and so that should make the off season feel really, really short. This one didn't, and you're not kidding. I mean, it's October 26th. Ole Miss has two home games left. Mississippi State, for what it's worth, we cover them too, has three, but one of them is East Tennessee State. So for all intents and purposes, they've got two home games left as well. It's it's mind-blowing. And there's still, like in these last four, I guess five, but these last few weeks, there's still so much that's going to happen in such a short period of time. I don't know, man. I I love that it went by fast. I do wish the, that at least for me that we could have stopped and smelled the roses for a while. And and I know like from Ole Miss's perspective, it, it's hard to because they played one real game before LSU and it was Kentucky. But at the same time, they played seven games where the take the next day was, yeah, well, it's just Georgia tech. Yeah. Well, it's just Auburn. Yeah. Well, it's just this. And Lane said things about attendance. And so we had to talk about attendance and it's like, they won seven straight games, and it's it's like we never talked about that, and I, I'm kind of disappointed uh, in myself in that. Yeah, no, you're exactly right, and I think that leads into part of what we were talking about about it going by so fast because I'm usually pretty measured in that sense. Like I didn't, I enjoyed the hell out of last football season. It was kind of the first go around of this whole Rebel Grove thing. 
We had Weldon come on. Like we, I felt like I finally found my rhythm. But they had like what Alabama week four, first week in October. Um, you had Arkansas before that, the crazy Tennessee game. Like that, the last year didn't feel like it flew by as much, probably because of exactly what you're just talking about from an Ole Miss perspective in particular. It's like everything was yeah, but. And can you just get to the good part, which started for all intents and purposes outside of Kentucky, which was a huge football game. That's not to minimize that one. And I don't think that win should be minimized outside of that one. That was the first week of October. It was like, yeah, well, what happens then? Like, and now we finally got to it. And granted, it was a tough pill to swallow for Ole Miss fans. That's probably part of it. There's very rarely, this has been, I've harped on this a lot, particularly in writing is like, there's very rarely been a schedule constructed like this where you just have the West to finish the last six games with the bottom right. in between. But that's got to be a huge part of it because I, I wasn't excited to watch them against Georgia Tech. Certainly no. wasn't against Vanderbilt, not really against Auburn either. So, like, that's probably why I feel the way I do about, like, this season going by quickly. And it sets up for, like, a, a precarious conversation as it pertains to Ole Miss. And we'll hit the SEC. We'll hit State, too as well and talk about a bunch of stuff but that's probably as any good place to start this was quote unquote the good part or whatever like this was kind of the start of the gauntlet and Ole Miss really kind of got a dosage of uh, a real foul taste of medicine and probably learned a lot about their team maybe not necessarily everything they wanted to learn but probably needed to in the first week um, of the, kind of the real part of their schedule and they you know they lose the LSU 45 to 20 the game wasn't necessarily indicative of that score, despite Ole Miss thoroughly getting their ass kicked for two and a half quarters. But, you know, after the interception, LSU takes it down and scores. It's like, all right, this thing's probably over. And then it just kind of devolved into um, a farce after that. I, I guess we'll just start there. Uh, what did you think of the game? Some losses are more telling than others. I try not to overreact on a week-by-week basis in this weird sport. But I, as I wrote yesterday, I, I do find this to be pretty telling. Yeah, w- which makes the yeah, but that you mentioned, it, it kind of justifies it, right? And, and uh, Lane Kiffin said a couple of things that were interesting in the press conference on Monday. And very few coaches, I, I listen to a lot, very few of them are actually interesting in, in their press conference. And at times, he's not. At times, he really just is miserable, and he just kind of talks like this and, you know, it, but this Monday, I think, was one of those times where he actually said a lot. And one of them uh, was about how the score didn't really indicate how close they were. I mean, they were they were in the red zone. They had a red zone interception away from taking the lead in the second half in that game. And yeah. They lose by 25 points. So it unraveled quickly, but it wasn't like they got blown out from start to finish. And so I found that interesting that even after, you know, looking at the game closer, his determination was, wasn't as bad as it looked. Uh, I found that interesting. And the other thing was he mentioned the schedule like you did. You think, you know, your team, right? I mean, you can coach every day and watch practice every day, but sometimes it does take somebody else uh, to, to expose flaws that you didn't know you had. It's like when you write a paper, you know, I, I remember, a, I think it was a 30-page paper I had to write in college, Ooh. and I and I read it over half a dozen times, and I couldn't find any errors. Let somebody else read it, and they found like a dozen. And little things like that where, you know, you, you watch your team practice, and you watch them play, and you, you think you've got all of this figured out, and then somebody, somebody else, a different set of eyes, capable eyes, looks at it, 
and exposes some things. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if you see more adjustments after this game than after the previous seven combined, because now they know for sure where a bunch of holes are when they play better teams, even a Texas A&M who's struggling right now, because yes, Auburn exposed some things they did, even Vanderbilt did, but it's really hard to truly feel like you got exposed when you're winning games while sleepwalking through them. So I found those two things really interesting. The wasn't as bad as we thought. And also sometimes the schedule helps you more when you play a good team early, you can make adjustments earlier. That's exactly where I was going next. I'm glad you brought that up because that was the two things that stuck out to me as well from his Monday press conference was, well, it wasn't as bad as the score reflected. And look, that's not to put a Pollyanna spin on this because I mean, if you read anything I wrote like on Tuesday, um, it wasn't great. Like I, I mean, I kind of eviscerated the lack of defensive depth. It looked really, 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 really bad. Like I, I can't, sh- I can't make that clear enough, but I did understand what he was saying just from the sheer scoreboard perspective. It was not, you know, as bad as a 25 point loss. I understood what he was saying there, despite not finding it totally significant. The second part of what he said, I did find very significant was the fact that it's like, you know, sometimes when you play a good program early in the year, you're forced to learn a lot about your team and expose your flaws. I think the example you use about like writing a paper and having another set of eyes on it is pretty apt. That's basically the newsletter world each week for me. Like every now and again, I'll have someone like, well, you had a typo here and here. I'm like, look, man, this is a one man operation. Like you're writing 2,500 <laughs> to 3000 words in these things. Like, yes, I am reading this as well as I can. Like I've gotten better about being diligent about editing stuff, but there's literally no matter how many times you do something, particularly in like long form writing, you're gonna, you're just not gonna catch it. You need to get another set of eyes, and quite frankly, you need three or four more set of eyes. That's kind of in t- conversation for another day. Why newspapers are suffering so bad? Because you know you don't have two, three editors, copy editor, sports editor, whatever the case may be. There's merit to that. You're just seeing it over and over again. Sometimes it takes another set of eyes. Well, you know, in football, the other set of eyes is your opponent, and it certainly opened up a lot of holes to Ole Miss, um, or at least weak perceived weaknesses on the team. I would say the difference in that piece of it is, is those weren't totally surprising. We weren't blissfully unaware that those existed. I think they just exacerbated them to a degree that maybe even surprised me a little bit. And we'll start with that facet of it. As Ole Miss gets after that 17-3 lead, it kind of felt like a little bit it was built on a house of cards. Ole Miss is always really good on script. I mean, I don't know what their hit rate is on the first two drives of a game. I'd love for some nerd to go back and chart that. It's probably pretty damn good. They are really, really good when they come out of games. And that's a speak. It's, it speaks to Kiffin's genius as an offensive coach and just them being very screwed down and very prepared every week. And that that shouldn't be undersold because even when Ole Miss was good in past years, a la Hugh Freeze, it wasn't always that way either. Um But then after that, as the game got settled in, and LSU was kind of the perfect opponent for that, right? They get down every week, and then they find the rhythm, and then they kind of, you know, get in a groove, and can they overcome whatever early hole they got themselves in? This one was an emphatic yes, and I spent a lot of time writing about the defense because I thought it was far more telling than anything the offense did, and I guess I'll start with that one, is – LSU did whatever it wanted offensively. Even on those first two drives, Ole Miss holds to a field goal deep in the red zone. I think it was a goal-to-goal situation on the first drive of the game. And then even the second where they missed the field goal um, and Ole Miss has a chance to take it up 21-3, to they didn't. But, like, they were still moving it pretty well. And so it was like, okay, this is – even though Ole Miss is up 14-3, to getting that to 21-3 to felt pretty important just because you felt like this was going to be a high-scoring fight because of even just how it looked defensively. 
And how as the game wore further and further on, Ole Miss just couldn't stop them. That's, sec- that's two weeks in a row an opponent has rushed the ball exactly 48 times against Ole Miss. Auburn averaged 6.3 yards to carry. LSU is like five and a half, somewhere around there. I don't have the number off the top of my head. That's a big, big problem for this team. And I kind of think that speaks or gets at the crux of this conversation is like, you talked about the defense last year. They really kind of carried the team in the second half. And once you figured out what they were as a complete unit, getting Jake Springer back, I know people kind of make fun of that and think it's overblown now. I don't. Whatever he was for that team, he was really damn important. But it's the Chance Campbell and Mark Robinson aspect of it. Like, Mark Robinson was really raw. But, damn, that dude was out there to go kill somebody and could meet someone at the line of scrimmage as soon as they handed the ball off very quickly. Chance Campbell was just a wonderful college linebacker for that one year he played at Ole Miss. I can't speak to what he did at Maryland. Probably a similar track record. But that's pretty much what I drew from this game is, like, they don't have those guys. Austin Keys is fine. I think he's a nice player. But he was a really nice third option at um, linebacker last year. And now he is the guy. And alongside him is an undersized guy in Troy Brown who is a productive player. He is not a total liability by any stretch of the imagination. But you're also talking about a kid that was under-recruited who played a year of safety at Central Michigan before being moved to linebacker and getting to Ole Miss. And so there's a natural drop-off there from a talent pool that already had a limited margin of error last year, right? I don't think it's disputed that Ole Miss got absolutely everything they could out of that defense the last eight games of the year. Now you have that drop-off, and you take away Sam Williams on the defensive line, for lack of a better phrase, no shit, it's not necessarily a mystery that they're struggling. Yeah, and can it be a combination of a bunch of things? I mean, one, the the, the guys that they do have are hurt. I mean, you mentioned Troy Brown. God bless that guy. I mean, he's tough as can be, playing through whatever he's been playing through. I mean, he's clearly hurting when he plays but still plays. Their best defensive lineman, or at least their best outside defensive lineman, he's been banged up and, I mean, can barely walk on the sidelines and somehow still goes into the game and plays. They've had various small injuries on the defensive line absent him. A.J. Finley didn't play much uh, in this game in Baton Rouge, so it's injuries. Also, as you mentioned, personnel. They they lack in some spots in personnel compared to a year ago. But I, I'm really curious to hear what, uh, on this very feed, what Pete Dewey says, uh, because I'm not smart enough uh, to know if I am right on this, and, and he is. So I'm curious to see if he sees the same thing uh, that I do when he and Neil do their film breakdown, which is outstanding content. It really is. So many times I thought in the LSU game, because I, I know that LSU has good to, to great, at least talent-wise, wide receivers. And you don't want those guys to beat you vertically. But but how many times, on not just first down, but it happened a lot on first down as well, but on thir- second and medium, third and medium, third and short, where Ole Miss's defensive backs gave, at the snap, gave so much cushion to LSU's wide receivers that a quarterback that, while getting better, while capable, his worst attribute is throwing the football down the field. Long passing is just do it. Yes. So you allowed this guy to to take a snap and, and have one read throws where he was just throwing just this little hitch routes and stuff underneath an easy pitch and catch all down the field on you. And all off season, we heard about how much of a strength their corners and safeties are. Well, if that's a strength, why did, why did you hamstring them? Because it felt like at times that they were and, and hearing a couple of players talk about it, it sounds like they kind of allude to that where, you know, it, 
it wasn't just personnel on Saturday. I think there was a strategic failure in allowing Daniels to just dink and dunk you, just pick you apart with easy pitch and catch throws that even a guy that's not the best passer you'll see this season can can do that. So you had a light box, and so they ran on a light box, but then you had your defensive backs 10, 12 yards off the ball. And it's like it felt like they were so afraid of LSU's wide receivers beating them vertically that their fear allowed them to get beat anyway. It's it's kind of like you know a mentality thing where if uh, if you're convinced, let's put it this way, an eight year old kid can't go to sleep. He's scared because there's a monster in your closet, and they they see it right, but it's not there, but they see it, and it doesn't matter if the they manifest it. So if you are so afraid of something, it will become true. If if the, the eight-year-old kid thinks there's a monster in his closet, by God, there's a monster in that closet. If Ole Miss is so afraid of, of LSU's receivers that they play 10, 12 yards off the ball, then they're, those receivers are going to beat you just in a slightly different way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you say eight-year-old kid. I uh, was asleep the other night, lost a pillow on the right side of the bed, knocked over a glass of water. I wake up disoriented and I'm like, oh, shit, who's in here? I knew I should have been better, uh, bigger into the Second Amendment and had a pistol. What's going on? The next <laughs> half an hour, me and my delirious self are like, what's going on around here? Is someone in here type of thing? But your, your point is well stated. And I just wonder how much uh, part of that is, too. So this defense, and I, I, I'm far from a schematic expert. I'm interested to see the piece, the here to the Pete Deweese angle of it as well. Is this defense generally is designed to protect the defensive backs and the secondary from giving up massive plays? Which is really kind of how the overall defense is constructed. They went to it last year because they felt like defense their secondary was a strength, particularly like safeties and stuff, and the nickel guy. You know, the, the uh, Taishim Johnson position now, the Jake Springer position, getting guys around the line of scrimmage and using their athleticism to one, help stop the run, but also kind of just wreak havoc in that, you know, eight to 10 yard area. Well, you know, for the better part of the second half of last year, they were actually pretty good at stopping the run. I think that manifested itself the most in the AM game where they just couldn't do anything. I wonder how much of their struggles in like, you know, it's hard to adjust in game. And look, these guys get paid millions of million dollars to do it. I'm not necessarily excusing them for a lack thereof of adjustments. But I just wonder about the fact that LSU is getting five, six yards of carry with a mobile quarterback per- paralyzed them enough to not just really do anything and stop playing soft. Because one of the big things about this defense is the fact that it does protect them, but also that you need to have a pass rush. You need to have some semblance of a run stopping ability for that to work. I mean, that's not necessarily specific to this defense. That's just any level of football defense becomes a hell of a lot harder when you're not getting to the quarterback without having to blitz. And that was very much on display on, on Saturday. Um, Ole Miss didn't get there when they didn't blitz. And then for better parts of the second half and pieces of the third quarter, although it got a little better, they didn't really get home when they did blitz. And so I just wonder if they were scrambling so much that 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 aspect of them playing so soft just got, I guess, lost in the shuffle, for the lack of a better phrase, coupled with the fact that Daniels finally did throw the ball downfield against Florida. I talked to Brody Miller last week about this. He didn't put the official diagnosis this way. But I wonder, to some degree, after they just got torched by Tennessee, that Daniels, who had been so averse to throwing the football down the field and making mistakes, that he was just like, to hell with it. What do I have to lose? Like, we suck on special teams. 
our defense gives up a decent amount of points and yardages. We sometimes put them in short fields. Sometimes we don't sustain drives and we lead them on the field longer. Why not just throw it down the field? And guess what? He had great success against Florida. He's not a bad quarterback. The interesting part about listening to Brody talk was like, he just won't do it. He won't throw it down the field. They've been trying to convince him to do it. He has one pick on the year. Like, you know, if you probably gave some truth serum to some LSU offensive guys, they'd be like, you know, we'd like to see that go to three or four just to know we're taking the shot type of thing. Yeah. Not literally, but you get my point. And so maybe it was just a combination of that. And that's not to excuse it, but I do just wonder how all of us simpletons sitting there watching on TV see them playing eight, nine yards off the ball and letting LSU just dice them up by a thousand paper cuts nine to 11 yards down the field. I mean, Daniel's only had six complete incompletions in this game, 11 and a half yards per completion. Some of that's probably skewed by Ole Miss's poor tackling guys catching at nine yards down the field and, you know, getting 19, whatever. But I just wonder how much of that played into it. And now that you kind of finally have that taste of medicine that Kiffin was talking about, where you play a good opponent, I would call if LSU is a decent opponent. They have good mm-hmm. talent to just kind of get, allow yourself to look in the mirror and say, okay, we have to do something differently. Because you can do that in wins, right? I mean, they didn't look good against Auburn. But, like, when you're 7-0, and like, are you really going to want to mess with the entire operation until you really have to when you lose? I wonder if there's some element of mm-hmm. that into it. Because that's what makes this weekend so fascinating. I want to see how it is different. But I just wonder if that played into the equation of, you know, no real adjustments at all, to be mm-hmm. honest. It, it, that's this is another question for Pete too. I'm curious to see if he addresses this as well. It, it felt like at times when Ole Miss did bring pressure, it, it didn't look like it was creative. And, and I, I watched Kentucky play Mississippi State, for example. And I'm not saying Kentucky's perfect or anything, but the the way they pressured Rodgers, I thought was creative. They were really causing confusion uh, to Mississippi State's offensive line. They they didn't know where guys were coming from. There there was one play that I remember where. Kentucky had four down linemen and the two that were lined up on the right side of the ball dropped back into a soft zone coverage and Kentucky brought two more from the left side. So they had state had two and a half really the center came over, but it was too late to block three easy sack on Will Rogers. And it's maybe Ole Miss is doing that and I'm missing it, but it doesn't appear that they are all that creative with, with how they rush the passer. Even when they just bring three, it looks like it's just three guys just, trying to just, you know, just kind of go get them. And, and it never works because they're not talented enough to get there with just three. Something's got to give there, though, because I don't think the personnel is as bad as it's looked. Now, they're lacking in spots, but I don't think it's that bad. I think there's, again, I'm, I'm, not, the, I'm not the brightest football mind, but it does appear that there are schematic adjustments that they can make to put themselves in better positions to make plays defensively. And the pass rush piece of it is tough because, I mean, look, that's easy to do when they, you know, they finally turned Sam Williams into an every down player last year where that guy was just a menace for opposing defenses. I don't think there's a better example of that than the Egg Bowl last year where he just torched a first round pick in, uh, in cross for, you know, the better part of four quarters. And when you lose that, that hurts. He had a pretty good Robin on the other side of him in, uh, in Cedric Johnson. And now Cedric Johnson's the Batman. But the problem there is that Cedric Johnson was hurt, right? He didn't play at all against Auburn. He only played 19 snaps um, against LSU. And he did have one where I think he – I can't remember if he got a sack or it was a run, ended up being a run play that he stopped in the backfield. He got up and had a little bit of a noticeable limp in his gait. And I remember writing down in that moment, like, okay, he doesn't look 100% healthy. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. 
but like that didn't necessarily look right when he got back up and walked to the defensive huddle or whatever version of that they have. And so that piece of it hurts, right? That he's supposed to be their best pass rusher and he's not hundred percent healthy. I think Jared Ivy's actually been a pretty fine compliment on the other side, but when you don't have particularly the three man front, that dominant force to kind of get after the quarterback and beat a one-on-one or beat a double team every play and still continue to draw a lot of attention and wreak havoc in opposing backfields, it makes it harder. And, you know, we talk about the blitzing element of it is they finally did start blitzing about midway through the first quarter on the third drive or second drive. They weren't really getting home. They got home once or twice right before halftime. I do wonder if there's an element of them being scared to blitz because if they're not having a great success rate getting home, mobile quarterback will cut you up and Daniels is a really, really good runner. So I wonder if there's some hesitation in that aspect of it as well. It just seemed like that LSU caught Ole Miss in a real pickle where it was like, damned if you do, damned if you don't. That doesn't mean there can't be schematic adjustments. I absolutely think there'll be have to be schematic adjustments to some degree, but I just wonder the soft schedule, the fact that they hadn't really, really been tested outside of the Kentucky game in which they never really trailed and played really good defense in the first half, that they just never really got in a desperation mode of having to adjust in real time. Until this, this is Chris Partridge's first time calling a defense on that his is own. very true. That's guy's out of football less than what six, seven years ago. Not that you know, not that that's an excuse for anything, but you're right, it's a new thing. They have different talent, but that gets back to the other piece of it, though, right? Like the talent is not as good. Is that fair to say at this point? I mean, it's a drop off from Robinson and Campbell to what they have now. It's a no drop doubt. off not having Sam Williams. The secondary may have gotten better, I think they probably did, but those you know, your front Boy. seven, front five, that, that that's a big piece of things. You win games in the trenches, but in a game like the one they just played, it's it's not just defense either, right? You you said it a few minutes ago. How many SEC West games are you going to win when you score zero points in the second half of those games? It's I mean, four games they haven't scored any points in the second half. The, that Ole Miss might be the best first quarter team in America, and and you know if you want positive spin on that, I'll give you some positive spin. There's a reason they're able to do that. Now, they're hitting some wall, and I don't know what that wall is, but they crash into this wall, and they, they cannot recover after they hit that wall. But it shows you that they are able to dominantly execute against teams like LSU. Ole Miss's offense looked dominant in the first three drives, flat-out dominant. So you know that they are capable of doing that. What I'm curious to, to see if they're able to find a way to get out of that, to, to find a way to, aside from Vanderbilt, after they hit a wall or after they get off script to continue to be as dominant as they are offensively. And here's more positive spin if you want it. If anybody can figure that out, it's Lane Kiffin. I mean, you have got as good of an offensive mind in this in college football as you can have. And if anybody's going to figure out how to get away from hitting that wall, it is that guy. But it's week nine now. At some point, you've got to do that. And we'll see if this is the week to do it. But that is a serious, serious problem that has a silver lining if you want to look for it. Yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, the first real test it came against, the first real time where, you know, it just wasn't going to be very acceptable not to score any points in the second half in a game like that. It came when Zach Evans is not available. It's pretty much the Quinshawn Judkins show. I don't think it takes a genius to figure out that although Ulysses Bentley played a handful of snaps that guy wasn't fully healthy and even if he was he's just getting his legs back under him for the first time in a month and no Michael Trigg and so 
that coupled with that, those are a couple pretty big offensive weapons. Not having that doesn't make it any easier. I mean, Ole Miss ran for 116 yards in this game, but what? It was like 3.6 yards per carry. I think they ran it like 18, 19 times. Part of that is them just chasing the game after they get behind in the second half. But, like, there's no real world where Ole Miss can run for 116 yards in a game at three and some change in, in a carry and be good. I thought, if you mean talk about silver lining, Dart was good in this game for the most part. I know he looked like a different guy after he took a few hits, gets the wind knocked out of him. He got hit a lot on Saturday. You know, Harold Perkins really kind of tormented that defensive line or that offensive line for Ole Miss, rather. But I thought Dart was pretty good. I mean, I, look, if whatever smell test you wanted him to pass in this game, I thought he passed it. I know he missed on a couple of balls, but he didn't really turn the football over. The one turnover he had, he gets hit on it. I know Kiffin wanted a P.I., but, you know, if you get hit, you get hit. It's not like you can control where the football goes after that. That's another thing that's a silver lining. But, the you know, back to the other, like, more negative side of it is, like, they haven't scored points in the second half of, like, four games this year. That's uh, – that's not really common. I mean, if they score zero points in the second half against Texas A&M this week, that will be five of nine games. They have not scored in the final two quarters. Like, you can't win football games doing that. I think they're capable of doing it. I think they'll find a way to get around that wall. But, you know, the first time they really had to kind of go climb over that wall, per se, in a game that mattered, they were shorthanded as well. And that speaks to the lack of depth on the offensive side, too. It's not necessarily an excuse but it's just a very interesting game. It was a very interesting way it played out in that sense. Yeah, and you mentioned, Dar, that there was somebody, I believe, that's employed by Jocks, but it's not uh, Cole Kublik or, or or the guys on the uh, the three-man front midday show. It's it's somebody else that, that I think is either works there. It doesn't matter. Uh, somebody that works in sports media in the South said after the Ole Miss LSU game that Ole Miss has a D and D problem, defense and dart. And I thought, what the hell game did you, you just watch? I, 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 I couldn't wrap my mind around that. What, what are you watching if you think that a 19-year-old quarterback making his first real SEC road start played like that and you thought that he's the problem? That was the, the next toughest environment Jackson Dart has ever played in in his career is Washington State. So for his first time playing in a true road game where, where the speed of the game, I mean – he was getting hit basically every play, and still in the second half, it, was he perfect? Not even anywhere close. But he still threw good footballs down the field, not exclusively, but still held him held himself well enough in that game, composure-wise, that made me think that you've really got something here. You, I mean, if this is his first trip to an SEC road stadium like this, his first one, I think you're going to be fine at that position. And now he's walking into a situation where not only will he, he wasn't, didn't seem like he was intimidated by Tiger Stadium, but he's acclimated to that kind of atmosphere and it only gets easier. I mean, Adam hasn't had a home game in a month and 10 days. We got $2 tickets going off there in College Station. <laughs> but exactly. I mean, so you, you think maybe people are just going to go because they haven't been able to in a month and 10 days. But it's not going to be this – it's not an intimidating place to play anyway. It's not going to be this juiced-up environment, and it's not going to be full or, or possibly anywhere close to it. So in terms of the other stuff outside of executing football plays but pressure and, and crowd noise and stuff, I think you're fine. I mean, that's not something that – aside from just the basic playing on the road is harder than playing at home stuff, I don't think you have to worry about him like unraveling 
although his team unraveled Saturday, I don't think you have to worry about your quarterback unraveling on the road in the SEC because that was a perfect time for him to do it. And he, he didn't do it. They, they lost and they didn't score in the second half. But his demeanor and the way he played despite in the last two quarters being under constant pressure and getting hit what felt like every play, you are perfectly fine at the quarterback position in your next two road games and then all next season. Yeah, and the, that jocks take is wild. I, that, wild. You know, that's probably a guy that didn't watch the game that closely that is just throwing something at the wall and seeing if it sticks. Pretty common in the industry, unfortunately. But, like, yeah, I'm with you there. I mean, even all those things you just outlined, even if he had just been a seasoned veteran, if that was senior or Bo Wallace, I was like, dude, he's pretty good in that game. Like, you know what I mean? It was just objectively good despite all of those qualifiers, too. I thought for the most part, perfect. No, of course not. Good enough to win a game single-handedly on his shoulders. No, but he's 19. But he didn't unravel, like you said. Again, I guess things could change. I mean, look, would it shock you if he threw three picks and they just unraveled at Arkansas? No. But to the, your point, like, they, he did it. And that was a prime moment for him, too. Look, Ole Miss got blown out in the second half. Dart missed some throws. But it wasn't they unraveled that you really felt like they were in the game. They're down 24-20. He fumbles. Then he throws a pick. And all of a sudden, it's 45-20 LSU midway through the third quarter because the offense has had to run like the LSU offense, that is because had to run like four snaps on a short field. It wasn't that kind of unraveling. It was more so they couldn't get in a rhythm. They weren't running it well. They were shorthanded, and the defense couldn't stop anybody, which is definitely not his fault in that sense. So I'm with you there. I think they have something at quarterback. The real issue, I think, if you want to talk about, you know, we talked about games being won in the trenches. Them getting beat up front on both sides is pretty alarming, and I think it's probably alarming for a couple of different reasons, one of them being – we were sold publicly in the preseason about how this is the first time they have real SEC-level talent on the defensive line and actually some semblance of depth for the first time since Kiffin took over the program. And I just think to this point in the season, that is just objectively proved not to be true. That's not a shot at the coaching staff. If you look at it on paper, you add Jared Ivey. I think his approval rating has to be pretty good at this point. He won the Kentucky game for them with the biggest play of the game. I think he's been pretty good. You had J.J. Pegues with a year older K.D. Hill up the middle, right? Um, you still have Eitan and Gordon, even though I don't necessarily love them to playing a ton of snaps. But, you know, Juco guys, they got their feet wet last year. You get them back. You get Tavius Robinson back. You have Cedric Johnson back. I see why that was the quote-unquote narrative on paper and why they thought that way. It just hasn't really proven to be true. I mean, look, I was looking at this last night as I was writing um, – I had it up a second ago. I can't find it, but they just don't have the depth. They 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 don't. I mean, you had what? Basically the same four to five guys playing. And, you know, after the starting three, it really is kind of a massive drop-off. I mean, here it is. I have it right here. In SEC games, Taiwan Malone, another guy, not a freshman anymore. I know he played baseball. I know he didn't get spring. That's a highly heralded recruit in his second year. And at some point, the light bulb has to go off and he has to start producing. Here is snap counts in SEC games. 2, 11, 3, and 8. Itens, 3, 20, 2, 8. Gordon, 6, 10, 9, and 19. Does that really qualify as quality depth where you can have a real defensive line rotation? Because the fact that they're not playing them that many snaps kind of answers the question for you, right? Like, they, they don't have that depth. They're playing their top-end guys a ton of snaps, and it's kind of the same as last year. You just don't have a Sam Williams wreaking havoc every play. Yeah, they, they've. It, it feels like they've got a bunch of guys, even even the starters, uh, that are good rotation piece, pieces, but there's not the feature guy. 
even Cedric Johnson, when healthy, is is not Sam Williams. He's just not. I think he might has a chance to play at the next level, but he's not going to step in and be good like Sam Williams has been right away for Dallas. It, it, people talk about the three-man front versus the four-man front. Where do you stand on that? Uh, because I, I, I see other teams run three-man fronts and do it successfully and stop the run. Mississippi State, for example, and I, I know they're they're not – you know, the best team ever, but I think defensively they're pretty solid. And by pretty solid, I mean pretty good. They held Alabama to under 30 rushing yards with a three-man front last week in Tuscaloosa. All game. On the field all game. Under 30 yards rushing for Alabama with a three-man front. I, I don't think the how many defensive linemen they have on the field is what the issue is stopping the run. It's bodies. It's personnel and and then some schematics. And I, I I would love to know how they feel like they can fix it in the short term to win these winnable games. Uh, I mean, this weekend is the the worst team that they've got left on their schedule. Very winnable game. I think Arkansas has a chance to to really be a shootout, but that's a game that you can win. Have you watched them try to play defense? It's not so pretty. It's the pass. That's a game the Dart's going to have to be really good in. Yeah, and then Mississippi State is a game that they'll be favored in by a touchdown probably. Uh, so. They right, won't. they they don't run, although they probably should against Ole Miss just to try. Um, but but you've got three very very winnable football games left on your schedule, so I'm curious to see what kind of adjustments they make because I Lane Kiffin in, in his program does not strike me as the type to be stubborn. Mike Leach is stubborn. Jimbo Fisher is stubborn. Mike Leach is going to do what Mike Leach does until they tell him you're not allowed to do it anymore. And he is not changing his mind. He will do it and he will do it and he will do it. And that's it. And if you don't fit, we're not changing our scheme. You're running my scheme full stop. Jimbo Fisher, despite his cheesecake factory menu worth of play sheets, is the same guy. Lane Kiffin doesn't strike me as a coach that is unwilling to change rather dramatically. And so what will that look like? And can you do that in a few days? Or does that have to be something that they start trying to figure out before the Alabama game with an extra week to get healthy and prepare for that? I don't know. Yeah, no. And, and back to like the three down, four down front thing or to start up to what you started off with. I get why that's kind of the national like clamoring from fans. That's the consensus. Like, well, of course it doesn't work. They have five guys in the box, right? It doesn't look visually appealing on paper. You got three guys spread pretty wide out, depending on what technique, like the ends are playing. And then two linebackers, it's like, oh, five on five. Like, no shit, they're not stopping the run. But that's not necessarily really how it works. It worked last year. That's the, the the I guess, the argument against it. It's like, well, what do you mean this can't work? What do you mean they're setting themselves up for failure? They were just fine doing it a year ago, particularly, again, in the last seven games of the season, it can work. Plenty of teams run three-man fronts and have absolutely no problem doing it. But I also understand why people are clamoring for it based on how it looked and based on Ole Miss's lack of adjustments and based on the fact they haven't really stopped anyone with the pulse from running the football outside of about two and a half pretty good quarters against Kentucky. My other, like, the counter to that, to make, like, the argument on the other side of it is, they need to do something like if your defensive line talent isn't that great and you're not stopping the run with three down linemen and whatever you have at linebacker and whatever kind of rover nickel star position you want to call it around the line of scrimmage. If that isn't working, putting another kind of big beefy body out there 
just seems to make some common sense, right? I mean, I think they need to do something. You saw them do it in the second half against Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt had some decent success running the football. Ole Miss comes out in the third quarter and has some four- and five-man fronts. And guess what? Vanderbilt didn't run the ball very well anymore. But that's also Vanderbilt. And they did it for a half a game, like completely scrapping a, comp- a defensive game plan and a defensive, uh, defensive scheme with four games remaining in the season just doesn't seem like a viable option. But at the same time, I'll give credence to it to the point of like, they got to do something. And if you don't trust having six guys out there, do you just live with the fact that four dudes are going to play a ton of snaps? Like, is, is that the way to go? I, I don't know what the answer is. Um, they didn't really have to answer it last year because of everything I said about Campbell and Robinson. Yeah, Those guys had flaws, particularly Robinson. He was raw, but those dudes could get in there and fill a hole and they could really stop guys in their tracks and blow a play up once they identified it as a run. They don't have that same level of that this year. So they need to do something, but I don't think the argument or the situation is just as simple as, well, this idiot's only playing three down linemen. They need to go to four or they don't have any chance. I just don't believe that to be the case. They need to do something. I'm just not smart enough to tell you what that is. Yeah. And I wonder if, this is the kind of game that you feel like you can experiment in because I mean, the A&M's problems offensively are well documented. Uh, they are, they're simply bad even when healthy. And now you're going to get Haynes King maybe. Um, and if you get him, he's got a bad throwing shoulder. That's a recipe for success or uh, an albeit talented one, a true freshman making his first start in the sec. And with an offensive line that's missing starters and aren't particularly good otherwise. Now they've got a chain is it, and that's a guy that can take the top off of you at the running back position. And he's scary, but otherwise they can run it. It's not like Bigsby and Auburn. They can run, yeah. but, but otherwise, I mean, if this is not an offense that you can slow down and stop because everybody has been able to slow down and stop them. Uh, then you're toast anyway. I I wonder if they try new things here because you might as well, maybe. Is that a stupid thought? That might be a dumb thought. But at some point, you've got to make adjustments. And why not start experimenting against a team that you're not totally afraid of beating you anyway? We'll get back to Michael Borky in just a second. But before we do that, I want to take a quick break to remind you. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue there in Oxford, Go check them out. If you're a Rippy Ride subscriber, that's rippyrides.substack.com. You get a free newsletter from me a couple of times a week, plus discounted meats. Right now, it's a 16-ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. Just go show Greg proof of subscription or whoever in there at LB's, and they'll get you hooked up. And then go find all your own favorites. Oxford's so lucky to have a place like LB's. All kinds of delicious cuts, fresh sausages, seafood. I like the tri-tip. The filet burgers are always awesome if you're trying to grow out with a few other people. All kinds of delicious stuff there at LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. Particularly over the top, right? I mean, DeAndre, another aspect that I think makes it mesmerizing to people watching on television is the lack of, it's not a lack of trust, but seemingly playing 10 yards off the ball, protecting the defensive backs. DeAndre Prince is a really damn good corner. I mean, we were texting about that during the Kentucky game. He made three or four plays. You're like, whoa, like that looked like something you see on Sunday. Davidson and Ben Nosen, albeit had a pretty tough game, on Saturday, he is a freshman, but I mean, you got some depth there. You got Miles Battle. You can kind of move some things around. I think it, they will get to a point where they just kind of have to trust their secondary more and do some more things and crowd the box more because just the vibes they have up there just simply aren't as good collectively as they fought the five they had last year. But getting back to the depth piece of it, the defensive line piece of it we just covered, right? I mean, look, I Katie Hill hasn't really shown a ton um, in this. He hadn't taken a next step 
this year. You've had Cedric Johnson hobbled. Um, I, I mean, Jamon Gordon's snap count was actually even higher than I thought. I know I just listed all of those thinking, see, they don't play them a ton. That was actually more than I figured he would play this year, which might speak to it. J.J. McGee's has had some moments, but none of those guys make an impact for four quarters. I mean, that was a question I posed on the postgame show last year, is like, or last week, is like, how many of those guys do you look at and you're like, that guy is going to make his presence known for the better part of, you know, 75% of the snaps that they run defensively. They don't have a really a single one of those. Maybe Johnson becomes that guy if he can finally get healthy. I, I don't know. Maybe it's Ivy. I don't really know. But the point is, that hasn't lived up to its billing. And then flip it to the other side. The offensive line is not terrible by any stretch of the imagination. But it was supposed to be this older unit that added some depth. Mason Brooks was supposed to come in and be either the left tackle or the right tackle. You move Broker to guard. You got James at the other tackle. You got some promising prospects in Pettis and Williams. I don't know either if either one of those guys from like a body type standpoint would make for a great guard. But the point being is like you got some depth. They really don't have it. Like they they've they're starting freshman tackles who have been fine for the most part this season. Although Harold Perkins would like a word about that because he just really kind of abused Pettis for a large piece of that game. But that part of it hasn't been buttoned up and great. Um, you know, Dart got hit a lot. He had to run a lot. Um, his pocket presence wasn't perfect. It's not 100% on the offensive line. But that piece of it hasn't been great either. And so not to harp on the offensive line too much because it's definitely not the source of the struggles, despite some snapping issues and stuff on top of that. But if you're not as good as advertised on both lines, in this league in particular, that just makes it harder to meet expectations, right? Well, Misk is average, I would say, on both lines. But that's an 8-4 and four team, and no one really, particularly after they started 7-0, and oh, no one thought this team was going 8-4. and four. That may be the case. It may not be the case. But my point being is, is just if you're not as good as advertised on both lines, then you're probably just not as good of a football team as you hope to be. I mean, football is a complicated game, but it's not complicated in that sense. And they got beat up front on both sides of the line of scrimmage consistently for, four, for three quarters in that game. Yeah, and I wonder – Another thing for Pete, I wonder if there was more that Ole Miss could have done to to alleviate some issues on the offensive line because that's not the first time that a team has been overmatched up front against a better defensive front. But but other times you can coach around that. I wonder if there are things that they can do, whether it be moving the pocket, maybe you know screen games and stuff if like they do, that. Not they they don't do any of that, and I wonder if that's something that they're going to add. Uh, to help take some of the pressure off of of this offensive line, because with all the the troubles and there's a metric ton of them at Texas A&M, they still have bodies defensively. I've heard Cole Kublik say when talking about the Texas A&M defensive front that they use a lot of young guys and they take a lot of plays off. Where you'll he said you'll watch the film and this guy will flash and you'll be like, holy shit, who is this guy? And then he'll take the next five plays off. And then you look at the recruiting sheet, and I go, that's who that guy is. Yes, exactly. And and so um, I don't think you're going to get the same test as you got from LSU up front. They're not as well coached. Schematically, I'm sure they are. Durkin is very good. We've seen that with our own eyes. But when when I heard Cole Kublik describe Texas A&M's defense that way, I thought, okay, this makes, this makes some sense because they're super talented. But they don't feel like they are they don't look like they are at times and it's because they've got a bunch of young dudes that just aren't ready for for this and I can't help but wonder if if Ole Miss is able to have another super hot script start that they just lay down and quit I mean when you have component 
when you have their own players, their own players to the media calling the locker room silent and fragmented, it's worse than that. I promise you it's worse than the way he described it. So if Ole Miss scores a couple touchdowns to start the game, I wonder if they're just like, you know what, screw it, I'm out. I'm transferring anyway, I'm done. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. I want to get to that in a second, but the last thing on the depth piece of it, because I think this exercise is interesting. The clearly Mason Brooks is just not a factor because I think they would have tried something at some point if they felt it was that big of an issue. Again, if they have to play him, I guess they will. That's a big miss, whatever you want to call it. I believe I tend to believe them when they just say that the tackle, the two freshman tackles were just really awesome. I do believe there's some credence to that. But then the sixth guy is Eli Acker. And if you have six guys, you can be okay. But ideally, you need seven. If you're really loaded, you need eight. Can you name the next offensive lineman they go to? Is it Reese McIntyre? I, I don't know. I guess, uh, yeah. I mean, like, again, that, that – and then the other side of it was just really the interesting game, the linebacker depth. So, uh, Brown is banged up. They're already kind of thin there. We outlined they're not as good as last year. The next option is two guys. It's Kari Coleman, who there was an edge guy at TCU, who's really quick and does some really good things at the line of scrimmage. That was the one shocker, and he's been dealing with an injury of his own right. Ole Miss is a really banged-up football team that doesn't have the depth they maybe thought they did. Shocker. Like, that seems kind of obvious at this point. He's not a really a natural inside-the-box linebacker. It seems like they're trying to mold him one, so that's not a square peg in the round hole situation. And I think he could be fine. 
but that's not. He a, looks athletic enough to to do that, but he's not there yet. And he's a good player, and he's really fast around the line of scrimmage. Honest to God, if it wasn't for his size, and they're actually not that far off in height and weight, despite being built differently athletically than his football players, when he would pop in early and get in the early part of the season, it looked more like Jake Springer. It's like, damn, that guy got back there quick. Like just kind of slipped in between a gap and was like, wow, he got back there quickly. But that doesn't look like a a bruising linebacker in whatever version of this smaller linebacker era we're in in college football. So whatever, those are the two guys. But to my untrained eye, Sistrunk looks slower, and it looks like there's a big drop-off when his snaps come in the game. He just doesn't seem as quick, doesn't seem to have the instincts as the other two, which we've already outlined weren't as good as the two last year. And they're hurt. Exactly. So you you say Troy Brown has to miss a game. I don't know that. This is pure hypothetical speculation. This is completely a hypothetical exercise. Kari Coleman, Ashanti Sistrong, name the next linebacker. Can you name one? This is not a test of your sports knowledge because I will actually be impressed if you can. Do you know the other options? Uh, they signed one out of high school last year that was a stud high school linebacker, but I don't remember his name. I'll just go through him. It's a kid named Trip White out of Little Rock. I don't know if that's who that's you're That's not the guy about. I'm thinking of. I, I, I couldn't tell you. I, I don't know. Jerron Willis. That's, a that's him. That's the guy player. I'm thinking of. Yeah. yeah. Lee County. Good high school program there in Georgia. Tyler Banks, Reginald Hughes, uh, walk-on John Portjavina, and some fella named Andrew Griffith who went to Bentonville, which I'm assuming he cut a check. Um, is like, sweet, here's your uniform. That, like, that, that, the depth is just not there. And to be a yeah. contender in the SEC seven to eight games in, even if you haven't played the toughest schedule, when Troy Brown is dinged up, you have to have the depth to supplement that to contend for a division title, and they're just not there yet. Now, look, they'll win this weekend. You set up a pseudo matchup. Presumably, if Alabama takes care of business against LSU for the West, they're still in a fine position. But my point being is, is the roster construction and where they're at as a roster, even with the West is down this year, which is probably makes this stings more for Ole Miss people as you felt like it was a little bit of a unique opportunity. How many years is A&M, Auburn going to be a dumpster fire and LSU have a first year head coach figuring things out in Arkansas not being great? You know what I mean? But like just to sheer like what you think of a roster needs to be to contend in the SEC West. They're just not there from a depth standpoint. And that's okay in year three, but it's going to have to change. And part of this is a conversation for another day. It's going to have to change through high school recruiting. It's going to be harder to build depth in the portal. They're seemingly, as we stand in October 26 or whatever this is, doing a lot better in high school recruiting than they were at this point last year. But like the only freshman contributors are what Judkins and uh Igbenosin, is that fair? I mean, no one else is com- uh, contributing as a true freshman. Teams that are really good, can I can have three or four. If you can pluck that out of your high school class, if you need them. Not even as starters. Can you be a depth guy and not look lost? Ole Mistress doesn't have that yet. And again, it's not an indictment on the state of the program. It's just contrasting what maybe we thought this team could do with the 7-0 and record, 7-1 and record now, versus what they actually are from a complete program standpoint, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. And uh, but th- that's the kind of thing that you can't fix right now, right? I mean, yeah, you got to fix it. high school too, not just portal. Portal Kings, I get it, but you have to build high school depth. And they're doing that. And, and I, I wonder. So we talked about this a, a little bit today, where the the mega contracts from coaches and how Texas A and M obviously regrets theirs, but. I don't think a market correction is coming there because use Ole Miss as an example. Let's pretend for a second. I don't think that this is going to happen in any any bit of this, but let's pretend it does. Ole Miss wins three of the next four games and win 10 games again. Fan base is on high because this was supposed to be a rebuilding year. 
Jackson Dart going into 23 is going to be a Heisman contender. He, he might be regardless of how this season ends. Contender. Uh, but either way, fan base is on full-on high. Recruiting's going really well. They're going to sign a top 15 class, it feels like. They're already well on their way. They've got four more four-stars than they had committed last year. Uh, so they're they're on their way to have a big recruiting class. Auburn hires an AD, and that AD wants Lane Kiffin. And he offers Lane Kiffin a mega contract worth $10 million a year, right? And Lane says, they're offering me $2.5 million more per year than, than you're paying me, but I'll stay for $10.5. What will the average Ole Miss fan think? Oh, you better pay him ten and a half, and you better keep his ass here. Keith Carter would have no choice at that point. And I think it, they can and will. I don't know the oh, they specifics will. of the numbers, right. but they will do it. This idea that Ole Miss can't pay dudes, coaches, particularly head coach nowadays, I think is a thing of the past. They, they, they would do it. I know that for sure. They would do it. But the thing is, that that's going to be another mega contract. I don't think those are going away because the pressure is going to be so great on athletic directors that their jobs are on the line. I think a market correction is already here in NIL. Is it completely, is all the ridiculousness totally gone? Absolutely not. But are you telling me that Texas A&M boosters are going to spend what they spent on last class on this one? Because maybe I'm wrong. I don't think they will. Does it my matter? <laughs> I mean, in their case, I get what you're saying. Your points will say, but in their, in their case, does it matter? Like Right. And the Miami guy has already decided to scale back. And to Ole Miss's credit, they're very well organized. I mean, think about it this way. Their collective is being run by a former apparel mega giant executive. That's who's running their NIL collective. So Ole Miss is in pretty good shape there. I bet that that is leading and, and will lead to them having a little bit more success in the high school ranks than they thought they would this time last year. Because it does feel like things, to some degree, some degree, are slowing down a little. That things are calming down some. You've still got whatever's going on at certain places, sure. But the, the, the numbers are not near as high in the recruiting circles that I've heard. And maybe I'm wrong and maybe I've, I'm listening to the wrong things. But then they were this time last year. Which obviously is to Ole Miss's benefit, considering how invested and organized they are. So, so maybe that will be of great benefit when they're recruiting high school players because the numbers aren't as crazy anymore. It doesn't help that there's a website that, that assigns an NIL valuation to recruits. I think that's bad. Honestly, I, I, I get why they do it and stuff. I, I think assigning NIL dollar figures to recruits is really bad because then that recruit is going to say, well, this website says I'm worth 100K. Give me 100K. And that might not be how how it works, and yet they're creating the, this marketplace. Like they're creating a, a marketplace database that might not be backed up in reality. That's a, it's a, might a little not. bit much. <laughs> might not. I so we've talked about this before. I will give a little insight on this. We talked about this before. And I know you know this. The you say it's bad. I think it is bad. It's also just a total crock of shit. Like I, look. There may or may not have been a hypothetical job offer for some shorter guy in Dallas that used to work in media in Mississippi. Again, a total hypothetical for this site that is construed that is uh, now made up this NIL evaluation. They might have pitched said person on this NIL calculator and started talking about social media followers and all this junk to where said person was left thinking, 
I mean, are you going to try to tell me you're going to become the Uber of NIL recruiting? Like, are you wearing a vest right now, driving a leased, you know, Lamborghini in Newport Beach, California? Like, this is just a total crock of shit. You don't know how the evaluation is. It's just the dumbest thing I've ever heard. There is the whole point of NIL and how crazy it is, is there is no market value. So this NIL evaluation thing that I know for 100% fact, uh, 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 factors in social media following what if you have a five-star kid that's like i think twitter's stupid i don't have twitter and i don't want to be distracted by instagram does that affect his nil evaluation if so why because that kid should still be worth i mean if harold parkins was like i don't do social media um i would say that kid's worth as much as anything you're going to pay on the market for that position or any but his nil value is now less because he doesn't have twitter or instagram i just i find that entire thing to be complete nonsense but yeah maybe i'm wrong maybe i'm just not that smart but to your point I do, uh, I do find that aspect of it interesting. And let's spin it four day in him because we spent an hour, like you know, talking Ole Miss depth in the LSU game. This is a fascinating game. If Ole Miss is good, I mean, if Ole Miss is remotely as good as we think they are, they should win this game. They should win this game by a lot more than two, the two and a half point line. But it's a road environment against a team that can run the ball, that still has good talent, despite you know, it seems like the mass influxes of suspensions and just the entire state of disarray that this program is. This is a fair test. I'm not going to leave the Ole Miss. A&M game thinking a ton different big picture in it terms to the season and the talent level and what this roster is capable of, I don't think. But if Ole Miss is a good team taking steps in the right direction, they should win this game. And whether they do that remains to be seen. And I'd like to get to the A&M aspect of that now is like, what's going on there? What would there? So we got, you got dudes smoking pot in the locker room who Former Nick Fitz, uh, former Nick Fitzgerald quarterback, good God, former state quarterback, Nick Fitzgerald. I saw him tweet that, hey, it's more common than you think. And, you know, everyone that probably has never been in a college locker room, myself included, it would be like, what are you talking about? But you can see it, right? I don't know. A couple guys wanting to mellow out. They make wax pins now that don't smell. Like, I, I get it. You know, what does smoking weed in a locker room mean? Like, they're probably not lighting up a, uh, you know, the end of a pencil and an apple ball 10 minutes before the defensive game plan meeting or whatever. It's probably a little more discreet, but that just speaks to the disarray that a is in. It's like, what you suspended a couple guys. It seems to be all the younger kids, mostly younger kids. You got guys transferring out. You got dudes, you know, high in the clouds before they go into Williams Bryce stadium. Like what's going on here. This should be a win for Ole Miss surely from the state of whatever the hell's going on with A&M's program. I mean, my God, I know Auburn looks terrible, but how, how do you compare Adam and Auburn? Is are they that dissimilar? Because that seems just as big a disaster. Yeah, and, and Auburn, you know, despite the the lopsided scores, still appear to be playing hard uh, they for Brian Harson. Their mafia's kneecapped themselves. But it has yeah. less to do with Harson than the situation. Absolutely. So w with A and M, I, I mean, I, I agree with you. I actually tweeted on Saturday that uh, that A and M is a must-win game for Ole Miss. Now, a coach is not in danger of losing his job, and let's be honest, they're not going to win a championship, so how can you call a game a must-win in a season where a coach can't lose his job and the team's not going to win a championship? I think this is as close to a must-win as you can possibly you can possibly have, and, and I got some pushback. I saw some, I mean, some people told me that my expectations were too high, and I thought, that is insane. Not this that, that, not, not this version of Texas A&M, and I was glad to hear... Uh, Neil and Chase say the same thing the other day. And I was like, validation, good. Like, yes, I was on to something here because if going into the LSU game, Ole Miss was not respected at all. The, the only conversation around Ole Miss football going into the LSU game was either A, they ain't played nobody, or B, Kiffin needs to leave. 
the most promoted analyst, the 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 bell cow analyst of the SEC network, Paul Feinbaum, was quoted saying that everybody at Ole Miss said the right things, but he just felt like something was off there between Kiffin and Ole Miss, and so he thinks that Kiffin's going to leave. Like, what what the hell does that even mean other than just being an intentional asshole? But that's Paul Feinbaum, but that's how people look at your program. Tim Tebow talked about expectations at LSU versus Ole Miss, and yes, there are truth. There is truth to what he's saying. Lane Kiffin can never win an SEC championship at Ole Miss and keep his job forever. He can. As long as you win a certain number of games and remain competitive, you're never going to lose your job at Ole Miss. So there's there is some truth to that, but the way people look at your program versus others is different. It's different. They look down on Ole Miss football. Tebow, Feinbaum, Greg McElroy, all of these people. Ole Miss got no respect going into that game. And so if you want to earn that respect, you can't lose games like this one. If you are a program that's on the ascent to the top of the SEC or in a, in a certain tier in the SEC, which your record recently says that you are, but if you are on that Tier two after Alabama and Georgia alongside LSU, Kentucky. If, if you're in that in that group and you're ascending to be a national program that is relevant, that when the playoff expands, you're going to be somebody that can make appearances. You don't lose to three and four teams on possibly their third string quarterback while players are getting suspended, while they have injuries piling up. You, you can't lose games like this. The, if they do, is it the end of the world? Probably not, but I can see it unraveling if they do. This is by far the worst team that they've got left on their schedule. And if you want to stop hearing people like Feinbaum and Greg McElroy and Tebow say the dumb, uninformed, elementary nonsense that they so often say, you can't lose games like this one. You've got to win games like this one. And if they do, it'll still be the same. Like, I mean, you can see how this season's going to play out already. You know, we've talked about all these things, how they're not ready and they're not there from a, a, a depth and a talent perspective in that point. But if you do beat AM, no one's going to give you a chance against no. Alabama. It's going to be two weeks of, you know, probably, probably actually not being talked about that much for a variety of reasons. But at the same time, if you do somehow find a way to beat Alabama, and I would not forecast to do Ole Miss to do that by any of the stretch of the imagination, but I would point out that, you know, with zero semblance of a defense, they were in a one-score game in the fourth quarter in Kiffin's first year in 2020. It's at home, whatever. If you do, then you're in the driver's seat to win the whole thing. I know it feels like a silly conversation to have after they just got shellacked at LSU, but that's simply just the reality of the situation. If you can survive A&M, you have two weeks to get healthy to prepare for Alabama. If you do somehow knock that thing off and you do somehow win that football game, you're two games away from going to Atlanta. And I know that's not necessarily the conversation that needs to be had right now. And I get it rightfully so, but that's just, you. it's, it's, it's plain as day obvious. Like as you can see how the season is going to play out in that sense. I do think Ole Miss probably rebounds and wins this weekend. And then we'll see, can they prove their worth against Alabama? I guess that's a fair way to put it, but you're right. Like you, you got to give yourself the opportunity. If you are that kind of program, give yourself the opportunity to get to that moment. Even if you get blown out, yeah. don't stumble over your leg twice and not even get there. Right, and even if maybe when they lose to Alabama, the fact that a 9 or a 10 win season is on the table after they lost, I mean, people forget what that team lost last year. They lost both coordinators. 
their superstar quarterback, their entire running back room, three wide receivers, two linebackers, uh, what should have been a first-round pick defensive end. And following that up with a 9 or a 10 win season would be a remarkable step forward. And that that's opportunity, yes, that's exactly what that would mean. And 2023 would be the most hyped season that Ole Miss possibly has had. And I mean, since I've lived here, if, if Ole Miss finds a way to win 10 games this year and you return Judkins and you return Dart and you return, you know, Watkins at wide receiver, wide receiver room is a little bit of a question, but you return both of your offensive tackles. I assume Troy Brown's gone, but you, so you have, what would it be? Out of 22 starters, you would lose five, you, six of them? Broker, you would lose. I don't think they lose James at this point. I mean, the guy's playing guard. Um, I think you get Ivy back. I think you would get said Johnson back. I Does Katie Hill have another year? I don't know. I, I will call him a loss. Um, but at this I, point, he's not even really a starter. Yeah, I don't know about DeAndre Prince. I don't know what his situation is. I would assume one more year. You basically get the full defense back. To- but we're, we're at like five, five or six guys without having to strain. And 16-17, I minimum. And your quarterback and your superstar running back uh, are returning, and you're recruiting well, and you assume they're going to get some guys in the portal. I mean, o- Ole Miss 2023 is going to be super hyped if they find a way to win two or three more games. Super hyped. Like you've ne- like like I've never seen before. I moved here in, you know, maybe the Hugh Freeze what twenty fifteen team had a lot of hype going into that season, but there was still the other stuff. There and was other stuff, and the other stuff was more prevalent. Remember, they sucked in sixteen, but that hype was real going into yeah. the FSU game. But there was still the other stuff. This would be exclusively hype and excitement with nothing else attached to it. If they can just win two or three more games to end the season, that would be, like you said, a statement that they are that this is sustainable. That Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss is a sustainable, high-end college football program, but that doesn't happen without a win Saturday. What does A and M do? This guy has a ninety-five million dollar buyout, and look, we've Weldon and I talked about this on Sunday. He was like, "Look, nothing's going to surprise me in this sport anymore if some guys fork over that amount of money just to get him out of there." if it really craters, because, I mean, we'll get to the schedule set piece in a second. Uh, they could go, like, four and eight. I mean, that's, they have three wins with UMass left on the schedule. They've got Florida, Auburn, and LSU, if I'm not mistaken, in between there. That's a – find the win without UMass. Like, outside of UMass, you know, find the win. What, what, what does that look like? Um, but, like, what do you do? I, I mean, the guy's clearly stubborn. The guy's clearly his offensive stuff is outdated. They're recruiting fine, but you're losing them left and right in the portal, which is probably an off-season conversation we'll have about, like, what is high school recruiting in terms of you having less control over them than portal guys. But, like, none of it matters. None of it is – I mean, A&M could have been 8-4 and four this year and everyone would have made the jokes and it still could have looked okay because this is the SEC West. But if you're cratering as a program like they are, what the hell do you do? Is How is this going to get better? I don't think Jimbo's an idiot. He did have the one loss season during the COVID year. I know everyone's not going to give him credit for that. Now, and probably rightfully so to some degree, but I don't think he's a total dope. I mean, he did beat Alabama. He nearly beat Clemson in year one. Like, Should have beaten Alabama this year. And what do you do? Like, what, what, what do you do about this? If there's one person I trust to get it right, it's Ross Bjork. So they're in good hands. But like, what oh, the hell yeah. do you do about this? 
that that's the what is it 86 or whatever million dollar question in the th- and the thing is if they give them another year uh, so what's the buyout next year 78 million dollars uh, but it, it's a disaster and, and i don't know if you want to set the precedent of giving a buyout that large and on top of that i know they have billionaire oil tycoons but uh, i mean if i own borky oil and in Austin or not Austin, uh, I don't know, outside of Dallas. And, and I've got a billion dollars and I, I'm a big Texas A&M fan and I've got a box on the 50 and they come to me after they've come to me for possibly seven figures to buy the players that aren't winning games. And they say, Hey, we need you and a couple others to find a way to get us $86 million with no return. It's just to pay this man to go away I don't know if I'm willing to do that. Maybe they find somebody that is. That feels like it's such an astronomical amount of money that it's going to save Jimbo. But the thing is, you mentioned Ross Bjork. So most people think that Jimbo needs to get rid of play calling duties, concede his offense to somebody else and and let them take over. Although it's cracking me up that people are mentioning Joe Brady. Like, yeah, I'm going to stop coaching Josh Allen so I can go back to calling 16-year-olds and flirting with them every day. Yeah, no thanks. I'll stick to coaching Josh Allen. I'm, I'm, I'm happy there. But if you're Jimbo Fisher, you're a stubborn ass is what you are. And Ross Bjork comes to you and says, Jimbo, we're going to keep you, but I'm going to tell you what to do. You have to fire this staff member. You have to hire an offensive coordinator, and you have to do this. What do you think his response is going to be? Maybe maybe he swallows his pride and does it, but if I'm Jimbo, no, fire me. Well, mine would be, excuse my French, but fuck you, fire me. Like, fire me. Give me my money. Like, Yeah, no, no thanks. Tr- trust me, Ross, I know more about football than you. So if you're going to tell me how to run my program and run my staff, I'll take the check, and I'll see you later. And I'll, I'll go to 30A, and I'll be good with my $86 million. So that's the thing. What can Texas A&M do if they don't fire him to get him to change? Maybe he just does. He's not. I don't think. I mean, I don't think so. I put it less than ten percent. Again, I kind of Weldon Camp. Nothing stuns me, but that that just seems preposterous. If that actually happens, would that correct? I mean, I guess we're really getting off the weeds. Would that correct the market in terms of like? If we're just gonna buy this guy out if he sucks, why in the world would I ever give him a ten-year contract? You know what I mean? Would that somehow weirdly correct the market where eighties are like? No, thanks. We're not going to be on five years because we'll probably pay you out after two with these crazy ass people on the yeah. with. Like, and especially when they're negotiating against themselves. To Ross Bjork. The only so, Ross is doing that in fairness. Uh, Ross Bjork gave him that extension in August. In <laughs> August. And so, uh, you know, we were talking about it on the show, and, and somebody said, you know, you can't just blame Ross. I mean, there are boosters that, that are making him do that. I said, well, no, what you need or what I'm, I'm thinking what you need to do is say not in august guys yeah talk to me in december talk to me in december but i mean i, I guess michigan state was afraid of lsu but that was a terrible one the, uh, why are you giving him 10 years i mean what's the difference between I, I i know it's four years but what's the difference between 10 and six what's the difference or 10 and four like I mean, four yeah. years. what does it matter like You'll get re-upped. I mean, in some ways, I know Ole Miss is hamstrung by the four-year rollback public figure thing, but what's the difference between 10 and 4? Like, 
if you do good for a year, we'll extend it back out to five or six. If you have the ability to do that, well, what's the well, in Ole Miss can manipulate some things with the foundation and buyout numbers and stuff to make a four-year contract feel longer than that. They can. I mean, it's not perfect, but they can. Uh, I've seen Auburn people say, well, of course, Kiffin will take the Auburn job because Auburn can offer more than four years. And it's like, yeah, Ole Miss can't, but they can. It, it's, it's not that that black and white they can be a little bit more creative than that but it is saving Ole Miss from themselves I mean it saved Ole Miss from Ross Bjork even though he gave Matt Luke there's a guy negotiating against himself a fully guaranteed contract with no mitigation clause when he was negotiating against zero people I can't believe I mean Jimbo's contract is like that James Franklin, I mean, Southern Cal was there, but James Franklin was never getting the Southern Cal job, as we've learned. He was never getting it. And in the defense of that one, just to kind of put the the, the, the bullseye on Bjork a little bit more, I don't think uh, Penn State's doing better. Uh, whatever you think of James Franklin, are they actually going to do better? Not that that makes the contract more rational, right. but in terms of just how stupid the Bjork aspect of And it, they're in the top 15 again this year. Uh, and so- Bjork didn't hire, I will have to say, Bjork didn't hire jimbo but just the negotiating gets yourself to get back at it speaks to i mean how the mike bianco contract where he just kept getting incentives to get bumped and bumped and bumped keith had to fix that that's an underrated uh blunder by our friend ross bjork like that that didn't work out great for anybody involved now mike can make whatever the hell he wants for as long as he wants it's a moot point but like that's not great either to your point that that, that is a special type of idiocy mel tucker I'll, I'll give him the podium he can get the third place champagne on that one on that but no one else really like the, the everything else is not that ridiculous yet no and, and i can't help but wonder and so i'm a big dave clausen homer i think the job that he's done at wake forest is absolutely phenomenal and, and if i was one, like like Auburn's not going to call him, which is so remarkably stupid to me. But I, I, it, it's going to take one of these schools to realize if the difference between us keeping this coach that has given us one year of winning and him walking, although he's got nowhere to go, uh, is a 10-year contract versus a six, I'll give six to Dave Clawson and he'll come here in a heartbeat. I mean, that's the thing is – I use that example on the show, and and I maybe listeners of this podcast won't appreciate this, but we were talking about Ole Miss, and if let's just going back to pretending that they're negotiating against Auburn, there there is a point where Ole Miss has to say no financially. There is there is a point where they would not be able to afford it, and and length of years is a bigger thing, right? Of course, and so if they reach that point, it's not the end of the world. Now Lane Kiffin is is phenomenal and he's perfect for Ole Miss and he's winning games and everything is fun and all that. But Lane Kiffin's not the only good football coach in America. And if for whatever reason, the, the four-year contract limit or financials prevent you and, and people roll their eyes at that because I've worked with somebody who thinks that you can always find the money. You, Ole Miss can't find $15 million a year. They, they, they can't do that. I mean, they, they can't find that. That's not there. I think there, there is a point that, that you can get to where they, they have to say no more. They can't. If that point comes, you are a good enough job and an attractive enough job to hire another good football coach. You don't have to. Lane Kiffin's not Mel Tucker. He's a hell of a lot more proven than that. But if for whatever reason you lose that guy, whether it's because the NFL comes calling or whatever, I promise you, Dave Clawson would hop on a plane tomorrow and take the old Miss job. It's it's not it, – Ole Miss isn't only good because of Lane Kiffin. There are 
good infrastructure things at Ole Miss that allow coaches to win there. Again, he's great. I'm not saying he's not. He's freaking great, and he's great for Ole Miss. But if something happens, it doesn't mean you're going back to the cellar. It wouldn't be the first time they send a plane to send it, uh, a North Carolina head coach to uh, come to Oxford and just hopefully <laughs> that were the case, which I, I know it's hypothetical. Uh, hopefully it work out better than the last time. What does State do? Uh, what, where are they at? What's their temperature like? They finally score against Alabama. I watched all the of The last play of the game. Because the night slate stunk. Their defense was awesome in that game. I don't really feel bashful about saying that. They were on the field a ton. They played their ass off the entire game, despite their offense having no chance. Leach does the dinosaur arms thing, and I was guilty of hopping on a, a six-pack speak message board and seeing people not like that. And it, th- it brought me back to when I was still on radio with you guys, where whatever the Lane Kiffin, Mike Leach hire, whatever directions they were going to go, the most predictable thing of all time was that a year they don't meet expectations and Leach does his weird Leach stuff. People were being like, oh, this isn't funny or cute anymore. Well, yeah. Well, guess who doesn't have enough like cachet to care? Uh, the Pullman, Washington, Washington State fan base. It's a different animal in the SEC. I- I've been fascinated by State this year because, I- particularly after they beat AM the way they did, and I know AM sucks, I was like, damn, this team is good. Like third year quarterback, third year leech thing. This looks awesome. And the defense looks really good. Like, wow, are they a nine, potentially 10 win team? This looks like a really good football team. I'm not sure I feel less about their football team from how it's looked perspective. It's more so the air raid. I've coined it on the newsletter, like the air raid taketh or the air raid giveth and the air raid taketh away. They lost against LSU despite being the better team. They went on the road and lost to Kentucky. I I couldn't think you could argue they were the better team that night. But I think if they played 10 times, State wins seven of them. They should have won that game. But it's the air raid thing. And then when you get against an opponent that is so much more talented than you, it looks completely uncompetitive. I mean, look, the last play of the game, if the clock runs out, you're talking about State not scoring a touchdown in Tuscaloosa since 2014. Mike Leach has not covered that span, but he would have not scored a touchdown against Alabama since he's been the head coach. And I just think that speaks to the ceiling of what the air raid can be. And I know I feel like every time we do this, it's like, oh, state's in trouble. What are we doing that? I don't necessarily mean it from that light. I just don't think they're getting the full amount of what their talent is as a football program because they have a stubborn coach who's not adapting to modern college football. And look, Leach has been at places where he's at college football outposts, and he has every right 25 years into this thing to say, hey, this is what I do. This is what I'm doing. I'm not even saying he should change and be less stubborn. It's just quite the catch-22 because this entire business, particularly in this league, is all about evolving and modernizing, and they just won't do it, not to mention the fact that they're completely behind the eight ball in NIL. What is the temperature of their fan base approval rating of Leach and, you know, barring an Egg Bowl victory, how does that get fixed? Frankly, it's it's all about the Egg Bowl for them at this point. If they lose that, the, the temperature is going to be exclusively Which, not to negative. Cut you off, to add to the conversation, that shouldn't be where they want to be. But the fact that no. that is the case is more of an indictment, is it not? Go ahead. And that, that's where they are at this point. And, it, I mean, it, beating Texas A&M the way they did, and, and that that game, the, the, the scoring margin is a little bit skewed. They had a defensive touchdown, a special teams touchdown in that game. Uh, A&M fumbled inside of State's 30 twice and gave the football away. 
Uh, so I think they, I think they had three non-offensive touchdowns, right? They had a blocked field goal, they had an interception return. Maybe it was just two, but either way, they they didn't score forty-two points offensively uh, in that game. But even still, every loss feels the exact same. You can take any reaction to a Mississippi State loss that we've ever done under Mike Leach and just copy and paste it after the next one. It's always the same when when they're playing these well-coached, like Kentucky. Will Rogers averaged five yards per pass attempt in Lexington. He averaged three yards, just over three, or just under four yards per pass attempt against Alabama and under eight yards per completion against Alabama. I think it was, I don't remember correctly, but it was under 10 yards per completion against Kentucky. Will Rogers throws more passes behind the line of scrimmage by percentage than he does travel further than 10 yards down the field. So so he throws 23% of his passes 10 yards down the, more than 10 yards down the field. Jackson Dart throws 47% of his passes more than 10 yards down the field. It's, and they don't run it. And when they do, they're, they're kind of good at it, but it feels the same that there is such a void of explosiveness with this team. And so when they get it, when they get up against these well-coached capable defenses, it looks the exact same every time. And so you've got three losses where they had LSU beat until they fumbled a punt. And then LSU kind of just exploded from there. They couldn't move the football that day though. They could not move the football against LSU. Same thing with Kentucky, same thing with Alabama. When they play these well-coached, good tackling, unfortunately for Ole Miss, defenses, everything is kept underneath. Will Rogers is unwilling to take risks downfield, and that's what it looks like. It's wash, rinse, repeat. Every loss is the exact same because they make no adjustments. It's the same. And when it doesn't work, it looks the exact freaking same. The void of explosiveness is a great way to describe that because even if you have a really good football team, 11, 12 play drives are hard. Like this is a hard game. Even if you're Alabama, even if you're Georgia, like I don't care what program you want to throw at me, consistently putting together 12, 13 play drives, that's hard. If you're a good offense, you have a 60-yard game to cheat that. That's how you score on a five-play 70-yard drive. Or maybe you hit one for 55 yards for a touchdown. The fact that they have to just matriculate it point by point by point down the field, you got to have a really damn good quarterback to do that. And even if you do, is there not a ceiling on that? That's the part that kills me, and I guess I'd never thought of a better way to like think about it. It's just the fact that they're not taking the top off of anybody, like, ever. And I, I just – I. I don't know like how that's conducive to the SEC because in against the Pac-12 and against the Big 12, you can do that because their defenses aren't that good. Um, and you get some bad ones and you win nine to ten games, but there's enough capable defenses in the Southeastern Conference. Hell, 2020 Ole Miss wasn't any good defensively, and that game in the Egg Bowl is probably closer than it should have been. But if you give them 14 chances to stop you, odds are they're going to run into a couple field goals and then boom, if the offense is good – you're kind of sunk. So the fact that you don't have any explosive plays to me is the big key in all of this. Like you just kind of have to have that in college football as a sport, particularly in the Southeastern conference. It swings games. And they simply don't have it. And and the issue I think that state has right now is not Rogers is good. He's good. They have a lot of good players. They've got good, They've got good things, but you you mentioned it. I think that that Will Rogers is at a ceiling with, with ability. Um, 
my concern would be if I was a state fan is recruiting is, is are they adding good enough players? Because the, the sell on Mike Leach is he does more with less. You don't need less. You need more. You need more. And, and, and that's objectively true. He does more with less. And, and look, they're going to win seven games this year, maybe eight. I mean, that that's what you more know? with less is. But the that's aspiration what... is to go more with more. When you peak, you can't do it every year, but be more with more. But does that ever happen with does that ever happen with him at the helm? No. And, and you look at their recruiting class and it's uh, you look at the offer sheets and stuff. And again, the, you know, the selling is, oh, he's just a master evaluator and all that. I, I don't think that they are acquiring the talent that is good enough to change their current circumstances offensively. They This was sold as the best group of wide receivers they've ever had. Th- then why can't they be explosive against the better teams they play? They've got a big drop problem as well. Yeah, and, and that's another thing that it, you know. I actually talked about this at, at work some, and, and Haydad agreed with me. He and he and Robbie got an argument on their podcast about it. But if if I was a state fan and I heard Mike Leach in year three say, "If you want to scare my team, show them an Alabama jersey. It'll scare the hell out of them." You I thought think that. Don't say it. Well, right, but but also this is year three. They're a division opponent. At what point is their fear of an opponent? not a direct reflection on your leadership. Why is that only a player problem? It, this is the third time you're playing against them. The only team that has played Alabama in the SEC since Mike Leach has taken over that has not been competitive with Alabama, Mississippi State. It's the only one. Tennessee beat them. Texas A&M beat them. Ole Miss scored 41 points last year, 21 point, or 41 points two years ago, 21 points last year. LSU lost by what, two? Uh, in, in recent history, uh, Arkansas took a ragtag bunch there and almost won the game last year when he was fired. If Tank Bigsby stays in bounds, Auburn beats him last year. Everybody has done this except for them. And no, the expectation should not be to beat Alabama. If Ole Miss loses to Alabama this year, it's nothing more than it's Nick Saban's Alabama. I mean, that, that's what it is. But the fact that they are not competitive at all. In that game in particular, would concern me because a gap should be closing, and it's not. Kentucky manhandled them, and and nothing's changing. I mean, it. The, the, you can look at South Carolina. South Carolina is lacking, right, in a lot of places. A lot. Go look at their recruiting class. They've got like fourteen four stars committed to their program right now. That 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 can win. So you look at their roster and you think, ah, it's not good enough right now. But damn it, they play hard and look at what he's bringing in. You can't say that about Mike Leach. Well, and even in the, the, you know who never said that and it never felt that way was Dan Mullen. It may have been true, but he, damn it, he wasn't going to say that and they didn't look like they were waving the white flag on the field. And Moorhead wasn't really competitive against Alabama, but you think that guy's ever going to say that? And I just felt like a state team never really... Look, I watched a couple more head games against Alabama, and they didn't really have much of a chance, but he never admitted that, and it never felt like that to where that felt different on Saturday. I mean, the going for it from your own 29, I didn't hate the decision, but it was like, well, like you're pretty much conceding you can't stop them and you can't hang around in this game. It just feels like they're waving the white flag more from a body language and a mindset standpoint than ever before, which is uh, – not what you want. Last couple of things before we get out of here. Are we positive Kentucky – or, excuse me, Kentucky. Tennessee's not winning the East. I'm still positive, yeah. 
You think Georgia clowns them? I I don't know if they clown them because Hooker is good enough and, and offensively they're good enough. But I, I mean, when, what's the last championship team that has been as bad as they are defensively? Very true. Very true. But that, I like the story though. I can't stand their fans, but I I, I like Hendon Hooker a lot. I, I, like, I like Josh Heupel. Yeah. yeah. I, it's a shame that they play in front of those people, but. I just, I mean, look, I, 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 my argument would be they script a game like they did against Alabama. Georgia, I think, has a better defense against Alabama. Man, you yeah. get up early, Georgia's not necessarily designed to come from behind. I mean, they almost lost a game in Columbia, Missouri. The flip side of that, are you sure Georgia, be, or excuse me, uh, Tennessee beats Kentucky this weekend? Not a lot of pub on that game, but Kentucky fully healthy. Still a pretty damn good roster, pretty damn good football team. Not a lot of things being talked about regarding that game, or at least maybe I've just had my head in the sand at work this week, but – are we sure they win that one? Uh, I, don't, I don't expect the same amount of coverage busts like you got against Alabama. Kentucky is yeah. very fundamentally sound, if nothing else, and a, a complete contrast in style. If Kentucky is able to like just get a, a few first downs early in the game to just slow everything to a miserable grinding halt where their possessions are eight, nine minutes long in this quick strike fast offense. I mean, think about this. Tennessee gets the ball first, right? Kentucky wins the coin toss, defers to the second half. And they somehow force Tennessee into a 35-second three and out. And then they go on a nine-play, or a 14-play, nine-minute and 30-second touchdown drive. And suddenly the first quarter's over and you're down a touchdown. I mean, that that's the kind of thing that Kentucky can do to people it happened with Ole Miss. Ole Miss had four possessions in the second half at home against Kentucky, one of which they intentionally ran three basic plays to get Kentucky to waste their timeouts. Ole Miss had three normal possessions in the second half of that game. That's it. I, I know. that's not. I feel like that's not getting a lot of coverage because of what Kentucky's looked like the last couple weeks, but it wouldn't stun me. Um, I they guess were really I, impressive against Mississippi State their last time out, so. They did. Last thing, I guess we got to get to the Pell's corner. Are they the one seed in the West? Holy cow. Uh, yes, they are. Are you kidding me? I mean, I mean, it, it, like, I, it, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around because, you know, I haven't been a fan forever. I, I follow a lot of people that are fans, and, and they've been in New Orleans basketball since day one. And those people, like, they're living right right now. I, I adopted them eight years ago when I moved here. But – it's hard to wrap my mind around the fact that like they're winning games because they're well coached and they're really deep and they've got really good players and, and that's all it is. Like they beat the shit out of Brooklyn in the opening night because they were just a lot better than Brooklyn. No other reason. Kevin Durant went off and it didn't matter because he was playing against better players. The other last night we beat Dallas with no Zion, no Brandon Ingram, no Herb Jones, and it was not a fluke. It was just they've got so many good guys in their rotation that even without Zion and Ingram and their best defender, they can still win games because it's McCollum and, and it's Trey Murphy who has grown four inches since they drafted him, and he's shooting like 500% from three so far this season. I mean, it, it's – Herb I, Jones, Alvarado, I mean, keep going down the roster. I mean, look – I watched a lot of that uh, game last night without Zion and Brandon Ingram, and neither one of those were serious injuries. It looked like they just took hard falls and kind of got banged up. Yeah, Ingram got hit in the face, so he's in concussion protocol, and Zion's got a bruised butt. He's got a deep bruise in his butt, so he'll be back like next game or two games from now. And he looks not fat, and he looks 
he looks like 2020 or 2021 Zion. What not 2021? I guess whatever two seasons ago was like. My God, like I, I again, the Western Conference is as deep as ever. It's going to be a grind. But you know, I listen. I love the Bill Simmons over under podcast that they do at the beginning of the year where they go through each team wins over under, and then they do prop bets at the end. And they were talking about like who would be a wild card one seed, and neither one of them really had any of this. But like. Why would New Orleans? Because they're going to play really hard in the regular season. They just are. They're a younger yeah. team that's going to play all their guys. They need to play all their guys. Like, like why is not that not the wild card one seed? It's it's exciting. I can't qualify myself as a Pels fan, but I have been to like three games in the last two years from just being in New Orleans. And it's a fun basketball brand. They're a fun brand to watch. And it is an uh, exciting time to be a Pels fan. And I'm not necessarily sure how many other points of their history. You remember not being a fan. You said you weren't a fan for forever. I'm not sure that matters. Um, I'm not sure really, really sure you missed out on X years or Y years outside of like a playoff series or two. There's there was one history. year where Chris Paul took them to the Western Conference Finals when they were the Hornets, I think. And yeah, then like he, San Antonio. Uh, I remember that. And then yeah. like Anthony Davis had that one series against Portland. And boom, there's your Pell's history. That is talking yep. Pell's history. Like that's such yep, we we swept Portland in 2018 and, and that was it. And, and the, the beauty of what's happening now is is this team is locked in for a while. And and I can't the 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 shift from Stan Van Gundy's one year and how Which is an awful hire. Ingram was miserable. Zion was I mean the, the team was miserable. They hated that guy. He was too old school. They they hate that the team hated him. To turn that into Ingram's on a, a longer term deal. Zion signed his extension with which ESPN desperately did not want him to do. CJ McCollum just re-signed. Larry Nance just re-signed. They've got this core um, signed. I think Ingram's the first one whose contract expires in 2025. So, so this group of guys is together for at least three seasons, including this one. And the Lakers' unprotected draft picks, who are currently 0-3, um, Westbrook was out with a bone contusion or something tonight. They're currently down three points in the first quarter of the Nuggets. That doesn't really mean much on its own. But what's to say that that's not a – look, I think at some point LeBron is just like, you know, this thing, like, we suck, so I'm going to get 35 points a game at 37 years old and have people praise me for it, which rightfully so. I don't mean that as a dig to him. But, like, there's a chance they're in the lottery and that pick belongs to the New Orleans Pelicans. Like, this is remarkable. And then, like, the last piece of this, too, is – you know, everyone talked about like, uh, you know, the Zion thing is toxic, not a great com communicator with the team. ESPN tried to will him to New York. But the fact that they were a playoff story last year where they took, you know, the, the Phoenix Suns, the overwhelming favorite to win the title or at least come out of the Western Conference to seven games in the Alvarado story and all that and then buying yeah. into the team culture and loving the coach and all that. Like that, I, in my opinion, I don't know if this has been written about or true, that had to open up Zion's eyes to like, oh, I'm not that hot shit. Like these guys are awesome and I have a great foundation around me. Like I'm not this shining star in a sea of dysfunction. Maybe I should buy into this thing. I think that piece of it is probably a bit invaluable too. I imagine so because you can win with this roster. Now, New Orleans is not the most attractive market in the world, but I think as he's learned, it doesn't matter the market you're in because he's getting all these endorsements and he's barely played. And so when you've got a team that has – a you know, not the best center in the league, but it's certainly a, a, a capable one. And then a multi-level scorer in Ingram and a veteran guard in, in CJ McCollum and an outstanding defender in Jones and a, a legit, excellent three-point shooter in, in Trey Murphy. And how many 
places in the NBA could you force yourself to, which is what he would have had to do in a trade that would give you a better supporting cast than that? It's a basketball decision, not a heart decision. I mean, of course, he seems to like, I mean, he's he's got some mansion out in Kenner somewhere in this great neighborhood or whatever, and his parents have completely, you know, they're, they're like, they're living in New Orleans and seem to be okay there. But that was a sound basketball decision, despite what, you know, the people at ESPN think about the franchise. Where could he have signed on to force his way into a better supporting cast than what he's currently got? And the the McCollum the ESPN thing is nauseating. I don't even want to give it too much credence. But the McCollum trade turned out to be an awesome trade, not even just because of what he is as a basketball player. McCollum's a really smart guy. He was actually a journalism major at Lehigh. He's got that podcast. I don't know if he still does it with Rob Perez, but like a guy that's really smart and thinks about it things in his career. Yeah. Like that's a guy that gets traded from a two like a nine year situation in Portland where they had some success. They won a lot of games. They seemingly, although I don't know what to make of them this year, retooling. A lot of superstars at that mid-caliber level have been like, really, New Orleans, like, get me the hell out of here. But that guy from day one was like, this is awesome. I'm going to embrace the community. I'd like to retire a Pelican. And whether he means that or not, having a, a veteran-level guy come in with a bunch of young guys and completely embrace one of the oddest markets, one of the three strangest markets in basketball and just be like, this is awesome. I'm here. Let's party is as invaluable as anything else. Yeah. Like, if they ever win something, I would give that guy a key to the city because just the character glue thing. Absolutely. And, uh, man, when you listen to CJ talk, it's he doesn't think like other athletes think. He he really doesn't. He's so thoughtful. And for for him to have chosen New Orleans, not not again, not the city, I'm talking about the the organization – is such a weird but validating feeling. Like you think you've got the, all these good things going, and then at the deadline, you have to get rid of Josh Hart, which stunk. But despite what Stephen A. Smith said or whatever, McCollum wrote in the Players' Tribune, "I chose them. That that's where I wanted to go." And for him to choose that and immediately like take a culture to another level, and then also play great basketball, it is so much fun. I said this on the radio today because kind of shooting the shit and i said when people say that Ole miss and mississippi state should punt basketball last night reminded me of why that's so stupid yeah because because good basketball is so much fun to to be a part of and we've just forgotten about it around here and that's kind of how i am as a pelicans fan like i cannot wait to watch the next game i i would have regardless but like in october I'm psyched up to watch basketball. It's so much fun. Flock up. This has been Pelican's Corner. He is Michael Borky. I always appreciate the time, my man, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Of course, buddy. Anytime. All right. That is our show. Uh, If you made it to the end, I appreciate you making this podcast a part of your day. We'll be back at it on Friday with Buchanan and then Fresh Cuts with LB's Greg. Had to move some stuff around this week. Buchanan, busy man flying across the country, selling insurance. So anyway, uh, we'll be back tomorrow with another podcast y'all hang tight till then everyone is talking about magnesium it's all you hear about but why what do we know about magnesium well magnesium is the number one mineral that 75 percent of americans are deficient in if you are a woman over 35 magnesium will help you rediscover balance energy and vitality magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body including those involved in hormonal balance 
From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.